Hello, I'm Michael Winship. This is a Moyers and Company podcast extra. I'm talking with Ben Weisner, who is the director of the ACLU Speech Privacy and Technology Project and a legal advisor to Edward Snowden. Since 9-11, he's been litigating a number of cases involving abuses of civil liberties, and including uh, airport security, government watch lists, extraordinary rendition, torture. Uh, he's a graduate of Harvard and New York University Law School, and we are very pleased to have him with us. Tell us about the Speech Privacy and Technology Project. What's its agenda? We're trying to plant our flag uh, at the point where science and technology and civil liberties intersect. Um, the rapid developments um, in science and surveillance technologies uh, really do have an impact uh, on a whole range of rights, not just privacy. Uh, and we want to have the, the expertise, the institutional expertise, to be able to identify what those issues are and, and shape sophisticated responses. So the project has lawyers, but not only lawyers. Um, we have two full-time computer scientists on our staff who are technologists who are experts uh, in encryption, uh, secure communications, surveillance technologies. Um, they've been able not only to help us respond uh, with uh, more you know, intelligence, I would say, um, to the intelligence surveillance scandals, but also to help um, identify issues that we might not have intuitively understood to be civil liberties issues. We want to be looking at issues that are not ready to be litigated, uh, but might be important issues in five years or eight or ten. And one of the things I like to do is go into a room of, of scientists, maybe neuroscientists, and say, um, what do you think the ACLU should know and be worried about? Uh, and just see what kind of conversation comes out of that. Um, and, and it's a really you know, amazing kind of exercise. You might have somebody say, you need to be worried about fMRI brain scanning. Um, the research on this is really scary. Uh, you know, it makes the polygraph seem like child's play. This is going on in classified Pentagon labs, and you need to be thinking about this right now. You know, it might be somebody talking about other biometrics that, that, are, that are not at the forefront, or, um, or what's going to happen or what the dangers are of, um, you know, universal DNA screening at birth and, and, and what protections are necessary. So sometimes we might end up writing a white paper about an issue like this. Uh, other times we might prepare litigation, you know, and other times we might use our network of 50 ACLU state affiliates uh, to push remedial legislation through the state legislatures. So in, really what you're saying is that there's something in almost everything that everybody does that's affected by the work you guys are doing. The reality is that uh, in the last year in particular, and really last, you know, two or three years, um, there has been a disproportionate focus on digital privacy um, and government surveillance. Right. Uh, and and that, that focus has certainly exploded uh, in the eight or nine months since, you know, Edward Snowden began to dominate um, the, the global headlines with revelation after revelation uh, about the scope of the surveillance state. And so uh, it's sort of an all hands on deck um, for that issue right now. Um, you know, a debate like this may come along once in a generation, uh, an opportunity to kind of hit the reset button uh, and for us to, to really reinvigorate our oversight mechanisms uh, and also, um, you know, encourage changes in the technology, technology community, you know, to, to, to um, uh, correct some of the asymmetries in power between, uh, between the state and citizens. How did you first 
learn and know about Edward Snowden? When did that happen? I had been a, a friend and at times advisor uh, to Laura Poitras. Uh, and a friend and at times source to Glenn Greenwald. Uh, you know, these were people with whom I was in very regular communication and still am. Um, and so when Laura Poitras um, first received a communication from someone who claimed to be in a senior position in the intelligence community, uh, who claimed to have access to documentary evidence um, of illegal, unconstitutional, and, and very, very troubling uh, government surveillance activities. You know, I was one of the people uh, to whom Laura reached out for advice about what the next steps were. Look, at that time, you know, she had been subjected to so much surveillance herself um, that it was at the front of her mind that this might be an effort to entrap her. Um, and so she wanted to make sure that she didn't put herself um, in any legal jeopardy or, 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 or unnecessary risk. Um, and so over the course of the next several months leading up to uh, the day in you know, late May or June when, when Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald got on the plane to, to, to go meet Snowden, I, I had been uh, you know, having conversations with them. But I didn't know Edward Snowden's name or his identity until you did, um, until The Guardian put on its website uh, that first video interview in which Glenn Greenwald asks Edward Snowden who he is, what he's done, and why he's done it. Um, uh, we were gathered around computers in our office watching that, just as I imagine people were gathered around computers uh, in, in offices uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, in Fort Meade, uh, in Washington, uh, and in a lot of other places where people watch these issues closely. How would you characterize what he has revealed? Well, maybe the best way to answer that question is to remember what President Obama said in the first week after the revelations began to, to appear on front pages. Um, he said, Americans shouldn't be too worried about these disclosures uh, because all three branches of government had blessed the programs and activities that were being disclosed. That was a true statement. That was also exactly the problem. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's worth looking at what those same three branches of government have done since Edward Snowden's disclosures, uh, since the public was brought into this conversation. Um, so let's look at the courts. Now, it's true that a court called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court uh, had approved in secret some of these programs. It's a court that hears only from the government, uh, does not have the benefit of adversarial briefing, uh, didn't get to hear what our objections uh, would have been. It's also a court that was set up to give warrants, not to, to write opinions on whether surveillance programs in general uh, were lawful. Uh, and when we try to bring challenges to these programs in open federal courts, um, we got as far as the Supreme Court, but every court turned us away without even considering the legality of the programs. Uh, the government said these, these plaintiffs have no right to be in court. They can't show that they were subjected to these surveillance programs, and therefore they don't have standing. Uh, and they're not allowed to use the discovery process to learn that because that would be a state secret. The result being that no one has the right to go into federal court to challenge the legality of these programs. Um, Edward Snowden was watching this. Uh, in our very first conversation, one of his first questions to me was, have these documents that have been published so far given you standing? 
um, to go back in court. You know, to him, the idea that a court would not answer the question, is this program legal, is it constitutional, but instead would contort itself uh, in order to not answer that question, uh, seemed like a failure of oversight, and he was right. Um, what's happened since his disclosures? Uh, we have now taken some of these documents, gone back into federal courts, where our standing is really much harder to question. Um, two federal judges have now considered, for example, the constitutionality uh, of the government's collection of all telephone metadata. They've come so far to different conclusions on the legal question, but both said that the plaintiffs had standing to be in court. Um, so one thing that he's done is he's reinvigorated judicial oversight. You know, what about Congress? You know, to me, the signal moment in Congress is Ron Wyden asking James Clapper, is there any kind of information that you collect on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? Uh, and Clapper says, no, sir, not wittingly. We like to call this Clapper lying to Congress, and it's certainly that. Uh, but it would be much more accurate to say that Clapper was lying to the American people, because Senator Wyden knew that the answer was false. Uh, he didn't. He felt like that he couldn't correct the answer. No one else on the committee corrected the answer. Clapper didn't correct the answer. No one on his staff, no one in the administration. So what we had was uh, a lie uh, being told to Congress and no one in any branch coming forward to say that a lie had been committed. And Snowden is watching that too. Uh, and what's happened in Congress since the public disclosures? Um, the issue has come out of the intelligence communities and into the full Congress. Um, there is historic bipartisan legislation uh, that would end bulk collection of Americans' data, uh, that would create an adversarial process in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. This is the kind of legislation that would have been absolutely unthinkable before Snowden. The, 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 the direction has been one way since the late 1970s. The, the, the deep state gets more authority, not less. Um, the opposite is going to happen now. Now, whether it's uh, something that seems more cosmetic or something that really is historic, well, that's really up to the people to decide. We will see. Um, but there's been an earthquake in, in congressional oversight of these programs, and that's because of Snowden. And even the executive branch, uh, even the executive branch, which said nothing to see here, you know, the president appointed his own review board that included former very high-ranking intelligence community officials uh, and other close friends of his. I think it's fair to say that the civil society organizations expected a whitewash, but that's not what we got. Um, the conclusions were, um, more politely stated, that the NSA had essentially gotten out of control, that it allowed its technological capabilities to drive its practices rather than having its practices constrained by laws and values. Uh, and even wisdom. Uh, and uh, there were dozens and dozens of recommendations that went not only to giving Americans greater protections, but also people abroad. Uh, and you heard the president in January uh, in his big speech about the NSA say, for the first time for any president, I think, um, that we need to be concerned about the privacy rights uh, of people outside the U.S. who are not protected by the Constitution. Um, so all three branches of government are now doing the oversight that the Constitution wants them to do that they were not doing uh, before Edward Snowden. You know, to me, that is his most significant contribution. And you feel that the route he took via journalists was the the one and only way he could go? I guess at times I wonder what people mean when they say that he should have gone through a traditional route rather than going through journalists. Um, you know, sometimes the kinds of people who we call whistleblowers, and I don't use that term as a term of art, um, are people who uncover unquestionably illegal conduct that's been hidden away, uh, and they just need to bring it to the attention of an overseer. Call up an inspector general, call up a member of Congress and say, look what I found, um, and then the system will take care of itself. 
But sometimes someone comes upon a system of global dragnet surveillance um, that the oversight system deems perfectly legal. <laughs> uh, this is not something that Congress was unaware of. You know, this is not something that courts were unaware of, at least the, the, the courts that were set up to review these practices. Um, what was Edward Snowden supposed to do? Um, call up uh, the Senate Intelligence Community, uh, call up the committee, and say, hi, um, I'm a 29-year-old contractor who works in Hawaii, and I'm calling to report to you about the programs that you have approved in secret. Um, this was a very, very different kind of situation. Uh, th there was no one to report to who had not been part of the system of approval. Uh, and even those who were in the Congress who shared Snowden's view um, about the propriety and maybe legality of this uh, were unwilling to talk. Senator Wyden was on the floor of the Senate with his hair on fire, saying, if the American people knew what I knew, they would be angry and they would be shocked. Well, that turned out to be true, but we didn't learn it from Senator Wyden. We learned it from Edward Snowden. And one more point about what he did. Um, you know, the number of documents that Edward Snowden has made available to the public is zero. Um, what he did is give information to journalists um, with the instruction that they and their editors, in consultation where necessary with government officials, decide what was in the public interest to publish and to withhold uh, information uh, that would be harmful to publish. He wanted to create a protocol that would correct for his own biases, um, he was someone who had spent the last almost 10 years in the intelligence community. Um, he didn't think that his own judgments, and he has very strong judgments about what should or should not be public, um, uh, were adequate to, 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 to this moment uh, and wanted to make sure that the institutions that had the experience in doing this, and these are, these are our newspapers, um, who have a long experience in competing with the government over access to and control of secret information, that that be the way uh, that the information got published. And, and people, many people have not noticed this. Um, in an interview that, that Snowden gave with Time magazine when he was runner-up to the Pope for Person of the Year, uh, he said he hasn't always agreed with the public interest determinations of the journalists, um, but that that's precisely why he needed to do it this way. Um, he, he didn't want and didn't think that he should you know, have the responsibility to decide which of these documents should be public. Um, he wanted to appeal to the traditions, the institutions, the expertise um, uh, of the media uh, in, in helping to make those important judgments. That's what we want whistleblowers to do. We don't want them to uh, unilaterally substitute their judgment for everybody else's. Uh, we want them to go through these institutions um, that, you know, that, that funnel and that channel that um, and, 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 and have longer experience in making these kinds of decisions. And yet Keith Alexander, the outgoing head of the NSA, made a speech at Georgetown a few days ago in which he said that journalists don't have the proper ability to analyze these materials. And he said that uh, Snowden's leaks had caused grave, significant, and irreversible damage um, to our nation. Those words are, you know, the, the classic weasel words of the deep state. Um, that sentence could have been lifted from the United States government's brief to the Supreme Court in the Pentagon Papers case, uh, where they said if the, if, the, if the court allowed the New York Times and Washington Post and others to publish the papers, they would be responsible for grave and irreversible damage to the national security. It's exactly the same um, kind of language. You know, I wonder if General Alexander really believes that our democracy 
um, would be stronger and better off um, if journalists deferred in every case to the expertise and interests uh, of the executive branch in deciding what to publish. Um, I mean, if you look just back at the last few years and consider what the public would not have known on that model, you know, we would not have known that the case for war in Iraq was cooked um, and uh, uh, based on deliberate exaggerations and lies, we wouldn't have known that American soldiers tortured and sexually humiliated prisoners in Abu Ghraib. Uh, we wouldn't have known that the CIA set up a network uh, of secret prisons around the world and used an extraordinary rendition program to, to kidnap people off the streets of cities, chain them to the floors of planes, and fly them to those places. Um, we wouldn't have known about an enhanced interrogation program um, known to the rest of the world as torture, um, where uh, prisoners were waterboarded, um, you know, suspended from ropes, um, beaten, um, and uh, treated in ways that the U.S. has always considered criminal when it was done to our old, own soldiers. We wouldn't have known that the Bush administration decided that the rules for foreign intelligence surveillance collection uh, were too cumbersome and that they should just throw aside the statute and collect whatever they wanted to under the president's own authority, leading to the near resignation of the attorney general and the head of the FBI. Uh, all of this stuff was classified, not just classified, it was classified at the highest level. Um, these were the secrets that the government said were most critical to keep. Um, but what kind of democracy would we be if the public had never learned uh, of this information? So I'm also not saying um, that journalists alone um, should decide what the public sees. I mean, the government's voice in this debate is an important one. It's a back and forth. It's always been a back and forth. Uh, I don't believe a single story based on Snowden documents has yet been published um, without consultation with the government, without giving the government an opportunity to strenuously object and to point out things that might cause harm in their view. Uh, and, and that's why I don't think there's been um, any credible evidence at all uh, of real harm to national security from these leaks. From your position here at the, the Speech uh, Privacy and Technology Project, were you, like Senator Wyden, shocked by the extent of the surveillance? The short answer is yes, um, and I'm not easy to shock, and, um, and I question whether I was being naive, but it never occurred to me that the NSA or Department of Justice could think that a provision like Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which is um, similar to a provision giving grand jury subpoena authority, um, could be used to get the records of every single American phone call every day. Um, it simply didn't make any sense. Um, or that um, the government could think that it was a valid constitutional argument to say that, you know, the Fourth Amendment basically is silent um, when it comes to intercepting and storing all of our communications. Um, it has nothing to say. It's not even implicated. Um, but only when someone decides to query that database in search of a particular person um, does the Fourth Amendment have even a limited role, uh, that they're allowed to collect everything um, without having to consider the Fourth Amendment. You know, it seems to me that that turns, its on, it turns the Fourth Amendment on its head, um, that we, we do search and seizure before suspicion rather than having suspicion before search and seizure. This stuff, the extent of it, um, was shocking, and I was also shocked uh, by by some of the NSA's efforts um, to undermine the security of the internet and our global communications in order to facilitate their mass surveillance. You know, the idea that they would deliberately weaken 
um, commonly used encryption standards that are used to protect our financial records, that are used to uh, protect our medical records, our networks. Uh, and they would do this even as other parts of the government are telling us that, that the cyber threat is greater than the terrorism threat right now. Uh, well, in the name of fighting terrorism, the offensive surveillance that they're doing is weakening our cyber defenses uh, against those other kinds of threats. This is going on in the very same government. Uh, and the amount of that, the, the, the way that offense had just been sort of given everything at the, at the expense of defense, um, did come as something um, of a shock. And I think not just to people in the ACLU, but to people in the technology community, um, many of whom did not consider themselves political, saw politics as messy, uh, liked the elegance of ones and zeros and code, uh, but now find themselves um, having to treat the NSA um, as a different kind of threat model uh, when, when they're thinking about security of networks and systems. And yet certain of these companies were also selling information to the NSA or sharing information. I think the, the relationship between the NSA and these companies is, is complicated. It's not one relationship. It's, it's many relationships. Um, you know, and I do think that, that in particular the Silicon Valley companies that have a uh, sort of self-image as being libertarian, they have the ethos of being, you know, against evil and on the side of, of, of freedom, um, uh, you know, certainly want to minimize um, the ways in which they facilitated the kinds of mass surveillance that's gone on. On the other hand, I think that there is a difference between, uh, you know, a program like PRISM, where uh, the government goes to the technology companies with orders from a court, um, and then they open up their systems in response to those orders. Um, and, you know, other programs that we read about where, you know, the NSA looks for the places in these companies where data is moving around without encryption. Um, so transfers of data between data centers overseas and then hacks into those connections. Uh, I don't think they ask permission um, to do that. And I think that, 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 you know, it's not all hypocrisy when the companies say, I can't believe they did that. Um, their attitude is, you could get what you wanted with a court order. The law is so favorable to you now. Why are you hacking us? You know, why are you why are you weakening us? Um, and, and I do think that now that the debate is out in the open, um, and now that uh, people around the world, or known to these companies as markets around the world, um, are are very nervous about American companies uh, because you know they they have seen how the NSA treats them like a silver platter. Um, for, for dragnet surveillance. You know, the companies face a kind of existential threat. You know, they're either going to have to do more um, to protect the, uh, and, uh, to give end-to-end -end encryption to their customers' data, or they're going to lose those customers. Um, and, and so maybe it was easier for the companies when this debate was in the shadows or, or, or when it wasn't really known. Now they really are going to have to make these these choices, uh, they can't, um, you know, present the same smiley face to the public and to governments. And it's really a global issue, not just a, a domestic one in the sense of all the companies have clients all over the world and there's pushback from those clients. And you see the way that, that, that the NSA operates. You know, they might tell um, Germany, we're not going to take data of Germans in Germany. Uh, so they'll wait till it leaves Germany and transits to Denmark and take it there. And they might say the same thing to Denmark. We're not going to take uh, information from the people of Denmark in Denmark, but they'll get it when it transits to Germany. And, um, you know, because of the NSA's access to these global communications systems, you know, the, the, the issue is global, as you say. Um, 
uh, not a lot of domestic reform litigation is going to be able to, to be equal to, to the size of the challenge. So there, there is a sort of broader challenge to free societies about um, you know, how to deal with the question of mass surveillance. We're talking, when I say mass surveillance, I'm saying um, basically collecting everything. Um, tapping into the backbone of the internet and siphoning off everything and storing it, which we can do now because storage is cheap. Uh, we used to have to decide who we were going to follow. Now we can follow everybody. Um, and there's no question that having all of that information is going to be useful to governments in some way. Uh, you know, you create a database that can be a surveillance time machine that can allow, uh, you know, governments to hit rewind and recreate our lives uh, in ways that would, would surely help solve some crimes. Um, it also is, I think, you know, a real danger to give governments that much power um, over their citizens. And so, um, so I think there has to be a sort of law and policy debate that takes place at a, at a global level, at least among free societies. But also, remember that when, um, when Google switches from um, having its Gmail traffic go from being unencrypted by default to being encrypted by default, something that it did in 2010, um, that affects hundreds of millions of people instantly, you know, at the flip of a switch, and not just people in the United States. You know, they, Google just made it almost impossible for the government of Iran uh, to get uh, Gmail information from Iranians who are using the service. Um, so the technology companies, uh, the, the, the fixes that they put in place will be global fixes and not just for Americans. But in terms of Americans, what do you, what do you say to people who say, look, they're just trying to protect me What's the harm? I haven't done anything wrong. I've got nothing to hide. I think the Americans do feel that way. I do think that when you talk about the, the dangers of mass surveillance, um, they can seem abstract. They can seem futuristic. They can seem science fiction-y. Um, you know, they, they're, they're not as easy to digest as, you know, a villain like J. Edgar Hoover, who is, you know, blackmailing Martin Luther King and infiltrating movements or Stasi, you know, keeping detailed files on, on neighbors and, and, and all of that. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I start by saying that, you know, we are not a society like that yet. Um, we are fundamentally, for most people at least, a free society. I mean, there are communities like the Muslim community that have experienced um, a much more invasive form of surveillance with informants in their mosques and, uh, and, and people in their community, provocateurs, but, but for the most part, um, that's not what it feels like now to live in America. Having said that, um, without the right kinds of democratic controls, these kinds of technologies frighten me. Um, and they frighten me for a number of reasons. Y you know, as I said, it, you know, our principal privacy protection you know, in the past was probably more cost than law. Um, governments simply had to make decisions uh, about what they were going to collect and what they were going to store because it was expensive to do those things. Um, now that those costs are plunging to zero and that, you know, Moore's Law marches on, um, it's technologically and financially feasible for, for governments to collect and store everything about us, all of our movements, all of our communications, all of our associations, um, all the information they need to construct portraits of our lives that might be more detailed even than things that we know um, about ourselves. And if you add to this other kinds of surveillance that surely are coming, um, uh, drones in the sky with Argus cameras that can record entire cities, you know, second by second, uh, and, and reconstruct them. Uh, we will be living 
in a different kind of panopticon. Uh, and I do think that that is going to cast a chill on what it means to be uh, a human being. If we know that you know, every moment that we consider private now uh, is actually residing somewhere, uh, and someone somewhere can hit rewind and see it, um, even if we ourselves are not suspected of doing anything wrong. Um, you know, if that's too abstract, um, I think that when governments amass uh, this kind of information and unleash upon it, you know, computer algorithms that are trying to make predictions and judgments, you know, who's dangerous? Who might be a terrorist? Who should we be more worried about? Um, you know, we've seen what happens on the commercial side every day with, with these kinds of processes um, because, of course, supercomputers uh, that belong to insurance companies and others uh, are trying to calculate what kind of risk we are. You have a credit score. Uh, if anybody's ever made a mistake, with a credit score of yours. Uh, I bet it was not that easy to have it resolved. And in the meantime, you might not have gotten a loan. You might have been redlined. You might have had much higher car insurance costs. Um, you know, I think when this tendency moves over to government, and it's happening already, um, we already have watch lists that say that some people can fly and some people can't, or that they can go in this lane or that they can go in that lane. Um, but that's only going to proliferate as there's more and more data uh, and faster and faster computers and more confidence that they can make these predictions about us. Um, I worry about due process. I worry about basic fairness. Um, and I worry about uh, a world, not a world that looks like Orwell. Uh, the, 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 the law professor Daniel Solov has said that maybe the better uh, analogy for this is, or metaphor is not Orwell but Kafka, um, where you know a big data state uh, makes judgments that are, you know, uh, can be permanent and irreversible um, and, and don't seem fair and we don't have a chance to, to speak back. And then finally, um, you know, I worry that um, the current state of play with these technologies um, cannot last. You know, that, that we're being told, don't worry, all of this data just stays in a box and we only look at it a couple hundred times a year. Um, that's true now, but it will not be true in two years, and it will definitely not be true in five. And in 10 years, every law enforcement agency is going to have access to this data. Today, it's the NSA, but it's going to be the FBI if it isn't already, and the DEA, uh, and joint terrorism task forces that include local sheriffs and your local police. Uh, and, and very soon, you know, the cop on the corner, through his handheld device, is going to have access to all of this data, and he will because um, we'll be presented with scenarios where if he had had it, it would have stopped this crime or stopped this attack, um, and the restrictions will be blamed, um, and you know, Pandora's box is going to be opened. So, so I think if we don't right now, when we hold the world's attention, uh, you know, focused on this debate, put in stronger democratic controls, uh, it becomes more and more likely that you know, the gradually through mission creep. Uh, we're going to be living in a different kind of surveillance state uh, and one that people feel and experience much more directly. It seems to me the other thing we're talking about also is, is the chilling effect on speech, that people are self-censoring even because they're afraid to, to, to be surveilled like this and to have everything that they're saying covered and, and uh, documented and whatever. Chill is something that we worry about a lot, and maybe we should worry about it even more. Um, you know, I sometimes think about poor Professor Petraeus of the City University of New York. One woman sent a nasty anonymous email to a second woman. The second woman called the FBI, uh, and in a short time, the FBI was reading the content 
of many, many, many thousands of emails. Uh, and perhaps they justified doing that. I think it was outrageous because once they saw the CIA director's name, you know, they thought maybe this is a national security threat. Well, I hope that that scared every member of Congress, um, that, that the FBI could use national security as a pretext to pour through the CIA director's private email communications. He was not even suspected of wrongdoing, uh, but because our digital trails are basically permanent and we can't erase them, uh, it doesn't even require the, the, the arrow to be pointed at us. It could be pointed at somebody next to us, uh, and then our lives can be, you know, turned upside down like this. So I think, you know, I think people are beginning to experience this. Um, you see these sad cases where uh, a Facebook photo of somebody drinking at a fraternity party when she was 20 results in her not being able to get hired as a teacher when she's 26. Um, it, you know, stories like that are going to proliferate where, um, you know, the digital footprints that we leave by living ordinary lives um, constrain choices, you know, down the road and do chill. And I think they already do chill. I think they chill things in a way that are going to give us worse politicians. Um, right now, anybody who wants to be president who's 18 years old is probably living a life, um, you know, of walking on eggshells uh, and trying to avoid the kinds of experiences that could be embarrassing. But do we want that person to be our president? You know, someone who from the age of 16, 17, and 18 is doing everything possible to engage, you know, in our world um, so as not to be, you know, in a position where, you know, his or her life can be distorted down the road? I mean, to me, these are really, really important questions that go far beyond law um, and, you know, and, and get at what it's going to be like to be a person um, in a world of universal collection. It's going to be very interesting to see how all of that plays out. Are you hopeful? I think there was a period of time after the 9-11 attacks, and it was a much longer period of time than it should have been, um, where the talismanic invocation of uh, terrorism or national security was enough to, you know, sort of silence opposition uh, to the expansion of the government's surveillance authority. Um, and I think that one of the remarkable developments in the last eight or nine months uh, has been how the surveillance state has lost control of the argument and the plot. Um, that, you know, their efforts to say that they had stopped any number of terrorist attacks with these and, you know, we would all uh, be in great danger if they lost these authorities just don't seem as credible anymore. And partly I think that that's a function of the distance from 9-11 and the fact that very, 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 very few Americans are injured or killed by terrorism. Um, you know, a, a, a tiny handful compared to other threats. And so people are beginning to be able to contextualize that. You know, partly there is a generation, and particularly a digital generation, um, that, that was not as politically traumatized by 9-11 um, and, you know, doesn't jump when the uh, intelligence agencies, you know, tell them to say jump. Um, and I think, you know, partly it's because people are seeing how these technologies are proliferating at the local level. Uh, even if someone is willing to trust the president um, and the Defense Department and the NSA, you know, most people are a lot less trusting of the cop on the corner um, who might use this technology to stalk his ex-wife. Uh, and, you know, we don't want him to be able to open up his handheld device and have location information, you know, for everyone in the city because a license plate reading camera has snapped that and he can feed right into that database. You know, some people call this the little brother problem as opposed to the big brother problem. Um, but I do think that there, there is pushback. There is bipartisan pushback. Um, uh, you know, this is an issue that, that is at least as important to people on the libertarian right as it is to people on the liberal left. Um, you know, there is this fundamentally American notion of being left alone unless you do something wrong. 
um, that is jeopardized by dragnet surveillance, which captures information on everyone in case we might do something wrong. So, yes, I mean, I'm about as upbeat as, as I've been. Um, you know, I'll tell you that, um, you know, two states have passed legislation requiring law enforcement to go to a judge and get a warrant before they can track your location using your cell phone. Um, those states were not New York and California. They were Montana and Maine. Um, so there's something going on um, in the country where, um, uh, you know, the question will be at the national level, level whether this will be a strong enough coalition um, to push reform through, through the House and the Senate against very, very, very strong opposition um, from a very well-funded security state. Um, uh, but the fact that we're, you, you know, uh, adding dozens and dozens of sponsors to these kinds of bills that would have been unthinkable um, just a year ago um, makes me optimistic. Ben Weisner, thank you. Thank, thank you, you Michael. Very much.